45. I'm Rod Hill. F- Quiet, please, ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big show? Right. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host... My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Reduction, from my perspective, is not reducing the harm. Do you know what? That is an example of a classic case of making news because it's the mayor of a major liberal city, in this case, San Francisco, and the mayor is London Breed. Now, she's officially a Democrat, although she's a whole lot more conservative than a lot of Democrats you might think of, but she did something extraordinary there. Because in just a few short words, she said harm reduction is not reducing the harm. Now, let me tear that apart and tell you what harm reduction is a magic word for, a phrase for, in America. And I'll tell you why it's literally killing people in this country that the official policy on drugs is harm reduction. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but just bear with me for a moment. First, though, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. And we always say, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. And, of course, in the last couple of days, we've had some great naysayers and some bad ones as well. But if you're willing to come in, make your best argument, and then stand up for a few questions, uh, it will be kind of funny, uh, fun at the end of the day. Not funny, but fun. Uh, if you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our Twitter poll or X poll, as we now call it. And it sounds like a strange question. Should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? And if you say, well, who's stopping that? There are actually four states in America. I mean, I learn something almost every day, but today in Missouri and Arizona, in Texas and Arkansas, if your spouse, the female part of your couple, and I guess these days sometimes it's two females in a marriage, depending on the state, but if your wife is pregnant, you cannot finalize a divorce. Not until the happy event has happened. So, should it be illegal to finalize a divorce while the baby is still on the way? I would say that's not a not a bad idea to say you should be able to say, hold that up, hold that thought until the baby's arrived and then finalize the divorce. But Missouri is considering getting rid of the law. It remains in place in three other states. Should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? And apparently that applies to both sides of the marriage, uh, whether it's one spouse or the other. Doesn't matter if baby's on the way, the divorce cannot be finalized. I don't see a problem with prohibiting the divorce from being made final until after the baby has arrived. But let me get back to London Breed. London Breed is the mayor of San Francisco. And when she was first elected, I thought, okay, you've got a woke city like San Francisco. You've got a Democrat and you've got London Breed. And then I started noticing what she was doing. And this thing that she said just yesterday afternoon. They held a rally, and one of the biggest problems that's hitting any American city is fentanyl and fentanyl overdoses. So what did she say about it? 
Harm reduction is not reducing the harm. Now, as usual these days, you've got to decode what politicians say. Harm reduction is a term of art that is used by the, uh, well, it's actually used by government. It's used by both liberals and conservatives grudgingly use it. What it means is that if you have people in your city, as so many American cities do, who are getting high on a regular basis on meth or cocaine or heroin or fentanyl, harm reduction means you supply them with everything they need, not the drugs, but you give them housing. You give them food. You give them medical care. You give them legal defenses in some cases. You do everything for them except make them get off drugs. That's what they call harm reduction. So like a lot of liberal terms that are used in government these days, it's kind of nonsensical. Because if you say, why, we're going to reduce the harm to this individual by letting him or her continue to smoke methamphetamine, shoot heroin in their veins, uh, take fentanyl through whatever mechanism they're taking fentanyl. Well, at least one big city mayor in America has finally condemned that failed government policy. And you should know a couple of things about that policy. I'll get to that because she says harm reduction, from my perspective, is not reducing harm. It is making things worse. You couldn't hear that in the soundbite because there were so many people applauding the liberal mayor of a liberal city condemning one of the most long-lasting policies in America. Now, the fact is, I think harm reduction should be called enabling. And it makes me think of my late father, who was an unrepentant, long-time alcoholic. Now, he's passed away now. I'm not going to hurt his feelings by saying this. But he would go to work every day as a forest ranger. He'd come home and get drunk every single night. And it did tremendous damage to the people around him. Now, at one point, my father came to live with Tina and I. Uh, when we were married, uh, we were married. And, and uh, he said, can I come and stay with you guys for a while? I said, sure. But there's one rule. No drinking. No drinking at all. You start drinking, you're out. Now, you might call that tough love. You could call that mean-spirited. It's none of the above. I was simply saying you're a longtime alcoholic. If you start drinking again, you're not welcome in our home. As long as you don't, you are welcome. Now, you'd say, but Lars, that's just common sense. Of course it is. But what's not happening right now is most big cities in America, including Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and every other big city, they all went along with this harm reduction. First, we get them food and shelter and medical care and an apartment, and we get them all this other stuff. And then at some point, maybe they'll decide to quit drugs. If you say, Lars, that's never going to work. I agree. It's never going to work. And yet that's what they do. So how did we end up with harm reduction? I'm going to tell you how. A guy by the name of Barack Hussein Obama claimed to be a constitutional expert, gave us evidence to the contrary. And more than a decade ago, in 2013, Barack Obama came out and announced that he was going to impose something called Housing First, which goes right along with harm reduction. It fits, they fit like a glove together. What he said was, you have to go out and get these people housing first, and then we'll solve all their other problems, the problems that put them on the street to begin with, and what Barack Obama said 10 year, 11 years ago now, we will solve homelessness in 10 years. Well, if you haven't looked around you recently, you understand that Barack Obama predicted the end of homelessness in 10 years, and the problem has only got worse. So 
When Barack Obama announced it, though, he also put in a stick. He said, if cities will not go along with housing first and harm reduction, then I will deny them billions of dollars in housing and urban development money. Guess what happened? The politicians in every major city in America said, oh, we've got to do housing first and harm reduction, and then we get the billions? Okay, we'll sign up for that. They did it. It's turned out to be a terrible tragedy. It has enabled drug addiction. It has destroyed a lot of cities, and the policy is still in place. But the light at the end of the tunnel may be when the mayor of San Francisco lives up to Frank Rizzo's old adage, a conservative is a liberal who just got mugged. Well, I figure that London Breed just got mugged by what's happened to her city, and now she's calling it out and condemning this so-called harm reduction that does not reduce harm. Back in a moment, glad to get your calls. 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Go to the head of the line at the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. You know, there are a lot of stories that I love to comment on and some of them kind of make sense. I mean, you know, based on where they're happening, kind of what's going to happen. So I would assume that in liberal places like Portland and Seattle, you're going to get a liberal district attorney who's going to act kind of predictably. But there is a story just this week that is so strange because of the way the DA's office handled it. Because let me sketch it out to you this way. I'm going to talk to the lawyer and bring her on the air tomorrow. But uh, uh, it starts with Daniel Thomas Warren. Now, this guy, as reported by uh, OregonLive.com, this is a bad guy. He, he probably ought to be locked up for the rest of his life and simply incapacitated because he keeps hurting people. In the last 19 years, Daniel Thomas Warren has been convicted eight different times. So about every year and a half or every other year or so, about every two years, he punches somebody, strangles somebody, beats somebody, threatens to kill somebody, kidnaps somebody, or bites the fingers of a victim. Do you get the picture of who this guy is? Now, I'll mention because it seems significant to the story, which is the only reason I mention personal characteristics, Daniel Thomas Warren is a white man. So, guess what happened? June of last year, he approaches the owner of a food cart who happens to be black. All right? He shouts out a racial slur. You can probably guess what that was. And then he beats this man to the ground. And once he's on the ground... Daniel Thomas Warren, who's now taking a guilty plea, so I can say he did this, he stomps on the man's face. He fractures multiple bones, including the man's eye socket and nose. Darrell Preston is the man who's the victim. And the victim says, according to Oregon Live, that eight months later, his face still does not look right, which is what happens when somebody stomps on your face. And they said the vision damage in one of his eyes is apparently 
permanent. Now, you've done permanent harm to somebody. You're an eight times loser. You've got eight criminal convictions in the last 19 years. You seem to make a regular habit of punching, strangling, beating, threatening to kill, kidnapping, or biting people. How long should he go to prison? Well, Mike Schmidt's show, uh, we call him that because his office is pretty much a Schmidt show. Um, his office originally asked for 12 years in prison for this guy. Probably not a bad sentence. And they also pursued a hate crimes charge because... The guy was shouting racial epithets while he's beating Mr. Preston to the ground. What did they get? They got a three-year sentence. And apparently the family of Mr. Preston said, look, we want at least one more year. He should go to prison for at least four years, and we'd like an apology. Did they get an apology from uh, Daniel Thomas Warren? No, they did not. Did they even keep the hate crime charge in place? Because there are a lot of times I think hate crimes are kind of cooked up. I mean, they're, they're, they're made out of whole cloth, but this one seems to be a clear-cut case. This guy attacked a man, shouted racial epithets, beat him to the ground, did serious lasting damage. And here's the part that I found the strangest. Mike Schmidt is about as liberal as the day is long. He's a supporter of BLM and Antifa and all that. Lots of reasons not to like Mike Schmidt. I hope the voters replace him in the next election. But you would expect him to go after this kind of case and then some. What did they do instead? They get three years in a guilty play, and I love it. The Daily Dead Fish Rapper says the reason there wasn't a longer criminal sentence is the defendant wouldn't accept it. What? You mean they went to the defendant and said, how much time are you willing to do in prison? His lawyers actually asked for no prison time after beating down Mr. Preston. Instead, they got three years, but he says, I'm not doing any more. I don't understand. For the life of me, I don't understand why Mike Schmidt, the DA, would not have said, well, fine, buddy, we're going to we're going to trial then. And maybe the jury can send you to prison for 20 years. I wish they had done that. Instead, they caved in for reasons we still can't understand. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. Well, I'm going to give the uh, Daily Grill to uh, Mike Schmidt, the DA of Multnomah County, for letting a bad guy beat down an innocent man, plead guilty to what he did, and give him a very light sentence, and couldn't even manage to get the victim family an apology, even though they asked for one. And that seems like little enough. In fact, attorneys for this bad guy went into court and told the judge he's willing to take responsibility for what he did, but apparently was not willing to actually offer up an apology. Now, let me tell you about a story I've called on today, and I'm curious about it because I don't know. Uh, ODOT has not called me back, but a gentleman, Oscar, wrote to me, and he said, Lars, my wife's best friend was helping out some legal immigrants to get their DMV license, uh, uh, you know, their driver's license. While at the counter at the DMV office in West Salem, they told her, well, there's a long waiting list. It's going to be six months to get your driver's license for these legal immigrants. But then the DMV clerk whispered, if they were illegal, they could get it right away. He says, why is this happening in our state? I don't know what to do, but it has something to do with it being an election year and sending out ballot mail-in ballots for harvesting. I thought maybe you'd like to know, signed Oscar. So I reached out to Michelle Godfrey from ODOT a couple of hours ago and asked her, is this the case? Is Tina Kotek's government giving priority 
and speedy service to people who are illegally in America in preference to people who are legally in the United States and want to get an Oregon driver's license. Have yet to hear back from her, but I'll let you know when I do. Glad to get your calls on this Tuesday. Always glad to take those uh, calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go to the head of the line, and Dan is a naysayer. Dan, what do you and I disagree about today? Good afternoon, Nate, um, um, Lord. Um, we disagree on the fact that you should not have to wait to get a divorce if, you're, if your wife is pregnant. Okay, four states say you do. Why not? Why not make the, the it's, it's gonna, assuming you're in the middle of the pregnancy, it's going to be a few months. Why not wait until the baby is born? My thought is with the high rates of infidelity, myself, I, I've had a vasectomy many years ago. And if my wife was suddenly pregnant, there'd be a bigger that, problem. Than, you want me to wait until she gives a kid? Well, that that's a good point. But then again, I guess when you go to court, uh, and the baby's born, and you say, okay, this is not my baby, and you establish paternity, uh, like Hunter Biden uh, had to be forced to establish paternity, and he was the father, uh, then at that point, you can resolve that one once and for all, can't you? Yes, I just, again, why should I have to wait when it's like, there's no way you could, it could be mine? <laughs> That's a, that's a very good point. And I will tell you this, Dan, when I first saw the story, I thought, now what would be the reason for that? There are four states that have the law, Missouri, Arizona, and two others. I'm waiting to find out. It's Arkansas and Texas are the other two. Um, I'm waiting to find out the history on that law and what caused them to put it on the books. And right now, Missouri is considering taking it off the books. I just thought it was an interesting question to ask, so we made it our ex-poll question today. But if, if there's no definite downside or upside, leave the law in place. But if there's a reason that divorcing two or three months earlier would somehow benefit one side or the other, I'm willing to listen to that as well. Dan, thanks. Good naysayer call. It's Tuesday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Exercising the right to free speech every day. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. One of the biggest problems I think faced by cities here in the Pacific Northwest is under-policing. Now, of course, the most extreme examples of that are Seattle and Portland, although other cities have the same kind of problem. And not just under policing, but the kind of politics that's been played for the last four years or so, especially. Uh, you know, it's been played to some extent for the last 30 years, but in the last four or five years, um, it's been extreme. And I think what it's done is driven a lot of good men and women away from law enforcement. So I wanted to talk to Aaron Schmoutz, who's the president of the Portland Police Association, the union that represents Portland cops. Aaron, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. Happy to be here. Not too bad. Uh, what are you going to do uh, with these two measures that have been filed by representatives of your organization? What, what are you trying to make happen in the city of Portland? So we, we've spent a lot of time listening and hearing how people feel about public safety. Public safety is the number one polling issue. It's the number one focus of our, our community here. And so, you know, I think a lot of the concern, you know, through Measure 110 or through other things that have happened is just making sure that we're not getting things wrong. Um, and we've seen a lot of bad outcomes 
as a result of some of these legislative efforts, and we want to make sure that voters have a chance to be heard. Um, we want to make sure we can recruit and retain, that we have the resources we need, that we can solve the problems on the street, and also that when there's questions about the conduct that officers engage in, that the system that uh, navigates that is fair, um, because it makes it pretty difficult to hire people and keep people if they feel like they're not going to be treated fairly. I mean, I've got two jobs, so I've got two bosses, but Aaron, it sounds like the average cop has a bunch of bosses. They've got the city council or the county commission. They've got the state legislature. To some, some extent, they've got the mayor and the city council and all those people. And then they've got police uh, accountability boards. They've got citizen accountability boards. If you count them all up, it's like you, you almost can't do your job without having about six or eight or ten people or entities overseeing you. Have I, have I exaggerated that? No, and I mean, the real challenge, too, is, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, constitutional policing has the standard, the Constitution. What You know, officers have rules and laws that dictate what they're supposed to do and how they do it. We, you know, we train our officers to that constitutional standard. And at the end of the day, when we're, when we're weighing conduct, it's important that it is held and viewed through that lens. What would a reasonable police officer do based on the totality of the circumstances? That's what we need to be doing. And so the accountability system, it's important, it's set up to be seeking that measure, not you know, how do we feel about it or, you know, because all those things can be dealt with. We, we need to be meeting with the community. We need to be talking about what we're doing, but that's a separate conversation. Um, the actual system that can take away someone's job or their freedom, due process is very important. Well, it sounds to me like your officers are not getting it because, Aaron, I've never committed a crime in my life. But if I committed a crime in Portland, in Multnomah County tomorrow, I can be prosecuted by one entity the county, you know, the DA in that county. I can't be prosecuted by any other county. I can And if I am convicted, I'm allowed to appeal it to one court. I mean, I can go up to the, you know, to the Court of Appeals. I can take it to the Oregon Supreme Court. If there's a federal issue, I can go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I don't have a whole bunch of different entities saying, well, this officer didn't break the law, according to the DA, didn't violate department procedure, but now we want all these other community groups to be able to get their shot. At, at lynching that officer is is that fair to say well and so and that is why um you know we, we did a poll we asked portlanders what they want and why we're looking to have the chief of police who is our boss um be the ultimate decider um and again input from the community is important having thorough investigations are important having you know people weigh in but having uh one body who is selected by an elected official who can who has police experience who has training who has an understanding of all those different processes who can take all that information in and make a decision to us and to the people we polled that is the best pathway to ensure accountability and ensure that the outcomes are commensurate with the calling that police officers have so if these measures get a vote what what is going to be asked for in that measure uh the first or the second well, let's take them one at a time. Let's take number one first. Uh, <clears throat> uh, number one is focused, again, on staffing and ensuring that the police bureau, um, that the city is focused on continuing to grow the police bureau commensurate with, you know, other agencies of our size. The, there's focus in there on, on outcomes, on how do we have access to detox centers, to, um, you know, addiction specialists, to people to, to help, again, solve some of these really kind of complicated problems that we have. You know, ensuring that, that street response is handled properly so that they can actually be a good partner in public safety. Um, so the first bill is just really focused on resources and funding um, and, you know, that spiritual connection with building a, a, a first response system that can endure different problems and not kind of ebb and flow based on politics. 
The second one is focused on, again, when, when in 2020, when the, the bill that, that allowed uh, the permission to explore and create a new discipline system, voters did not have the benefit of voting on the actual structure. Now they do, and we've seen a lot of concerns about some of those things. Um, things such as who can decide on the discipline, things such as the makeup of the board and, and excluding certain people based on their family, you know, they have a family who's in law enforcement, and most importantly, the budget. The budget is in the charter. It's a minimum amount of 5% of the police budget, regardless of whether or not the money's needed. And at a time when we're kind of approaching a fiscal cliff here, it seems financially irresponsible, and Portland, Portlanders pretty loud and clear said it's financially irresponsible um, to – you know, budget money regardless of whether or not, you know, you need it. It's like the inverse of the lemonade stand theory. Um, if you don't need the money, you shouldn't be spending it on that particular idea. Oh, I, I wish you could go down and talk to every lawmaker in Olympia and Salem, because right now they're both sitting on giant piles of money and they can't spend it fast enough. They've never met a dollar they didn't want to spend tomorrow. Let me ask you about something else that relates to this, Aaron. I, I still hear from people in law enforcement, you know, who will tell me one thing or another, and, and sometimes even they don't know. But I had one person say, Lars, is it true that, and this is from in from a retired law enforcement, um, 70% of Portland police officers have three years or less on the street? Um, I don't know if that's the exact number, um, but our, our attrition has created a very young department. Um, you know, I, I am in the last third of my uh, career by time, and I'd say probably – you know, a good 50 to 60 percent um, are in that new group. We've been hiring very quickly. I mean, and that's the challenge is when you lose experience, um, you know, and people understanding how to navigate the world, and really you go back three or four years, 2020 was a big change in the way that law enforcement does its, its work, and, and, you know, there was a, kind of a, almost a freezing in, in time there. And now, you know, we're asking officers to return to interdiction, to return to an enforcement model, to, to really – work on some of these problems in our community, and that takes time and training and experience. And so there is a lot of concern that our officers have access to the training and to the experience they need to be successful doing the job. But some of it is just time on the job, isn't it? You get na knowledge about the neighborhood you work, about, about the way the city works, about things are, that are going to happen. If you've got that kind of lack of historical knowledge you know, and police experience on the streets, is that dangerous for both officers and the public? Well, it certainly is a challenge from the standpoint that police work is, as you said, it's, a lot of it is relational and a lot of it is experience-based and it's like kind of instinct-based. And so let's say you, know, you look at drug enforcement. You know, for the last handful of years since Measure 110 passed, we haven't been doing a lot of drug enforcement at that street level because of the, of the, of the rule changes. Now, you know, if the rules change, we're going to ask officers to kind of get to, to navigate the world a little bit differently again. Do they have the experience? Have, you know, have they talked to people, um, you know, for that possession level? You know, do we have good training on how to navigate those conversations? It's really important. Yeah, it sounds like sounds like lack of experience. I'm not holding it against the officers. I mean, you can't add 10 or 20 years to your experience, but I think it puts them at a real disadvantage. Aaron, thanks for the time and good luck with the measures. Thank you, sir. You betcha. That's Aaron Schmouts from the Portland Police Association. It's Tuesday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com.
Broadcasting the sound of freedom. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. Our poll on X today used to be called Twitter. Now it's X. Should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? Uh, I learn something every day, but in the research we do for this show, it turns out in four states in America, if the woman in the, mar in the uh, marriage or relationship uh, is pregnant, uh, those states, Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, and Arizona, will not let you finalize a divorce until after the child is born. I haven't yet been able to find out the legislative history of those laws or how long they've been around or why they're on the books. Missouri is now considering getting rid of the law. If they, if they pass the bill to get rid of it, uh, then, then people would be able to legally divorce and, um, uh, separate and legally divorce uh, before the birth of a child. If it goes into effect, it'll go into effect in late August if their legislature passes it and it gets signed. But should you be able to divorce your wife if she's pregnant? I said no on first blush. If I find out more and change my mind on that, I, I'll tell you why, but it, it kind of leaves me ambivalent. I could see points in favor, and of course, paternity has been raised as a question. You know, if, you're, if your wife or girlfriend is pregnant, and she says it's your baby, and you suspected somebody else else's push is going to come to shove when the mother of that child that you insist is not yours and she insists is yours when she says I want child support. Well, you can do exactly what Hunter Biden's girlfriend did. Uh, Hunter Biden said it wasn't his baby. Uh, she said it was. Uh, he demanded a paternity test, and guess what? Hunter Biden is now shelling out thousands of dollars every month for child support because the baby he thought he had not fathered, he might have been high, he might have been all coked up, uh, it turned out to be his. But that may be another matter. But I just thought I'd throw it out for, for you to consider, should you be able to finalize the divorce if your wife is pregnant? Now, clearly, if your wife's pregnant, and she's filing divorce or or you're filing for divorce, your relationship has bigger problems than just the baby. You can find the X-Poll question at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Uh, brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, We've talked a lot about fentanyl this week. Uh, I apologize for that, but it is the front and center issue before the Oregon legislature right now. It should be the front and center issue in front of the Washington legislature, but neither legislative body seems willing under Democrat control to do anything about this literally critical and deadly problem. And if you say, but Lars, the Oregon legislature, according to all the TV stations and the newspaper, the Daily Dead Fish Rapper, they say they're getting very, very close to finalizing a deal. I want to warn you about that deal, because you're going to be sold a bill of goods. They're saying that Measure 110 passed by the voters several years ago by 58%, which is now opposed by 64%. In other words, it's all the people who voted for it, uh, almost all of them have now decided they're against it because they saw what it did. It's killing people. It brought a lot of drugs and a lot of trouble to the region. So they want to get rid of it. Do state lawmakers want to get rid of it? Most of the Republicans do. Some have gone a little squish. Democrats, on the other hand, have said, no, we want to keep it because we're getting a lot of campaign money from the George Soros Drug Policy Alliance. So what's the latest development? The DA of Multnomah County, Mike Schmidt, 
you know, the one who does such a terrible job and he ought to be replaced at the next election, he's now come out and endorsed what they are calling recriminalization of hard drugs. Only they're not going back to pre-measure 110 times. They are going to do something so soft and so squishy that it isn't going to do a bit of good. And you know, the thing is, Schmidt knows that. He knows that this measure that they're about to pass, if they can corral enough Republicans to vote for it, is not going to change the situation, not one iota. He knows that it's a toothless tiger. The Democrat Party bill technically will make hard drug possession the lowest of the low level of misdemeanor. And that's the first problem, because you're not going to encourage anybody to get into treatment when you say, well, if you don't go to treatment, we're going to give you a C misdemeanor which is not quite like having a dirty license plate ticket, but pretty close. Um, so what does it specify? The Democrats spelled out in this plan, no fine for the person who's committed this new crime, even though most misdemeanors carry a fine. No jail time whatsoever. Well, that's a problem, too. No requirement that the addict go into drug addiction treatment. And while they've said... We want to get them into treatment. They've actually created a new category that doesn't even exist in the law right now. They call it deflection. And if you're thinking, Lars, no, you're talking about diversion. Like you get, if you get a DUI and you have to go to a diversion. No, they decided they didn't even want it to be diversion. So they've created something that's brand new in the law. Nobody even knows how it works exactly because it's not in the law yet. It's called deflection which means some kind of treatment sometime for whoever decides to sign up for it. And I'll point out, the Chief Justice of the Oregon Supreme Court, who's one of the Democrat liberals appointed to the court by uh, uh, Kate Brown before Tina Kotek became governor, she wrote a letter to the lawmakers, and she basically announced how this law was going to be sabotaged before it even passed. That lawyers are not available for those accused of the drug charges, so charges will be dropped. Many will not show up for court, and no failure to appear charges. And if you fail to appear, no lawyer will be available because they don't have enough, so they'll simply dismiss the charges. So D.A. Mike Schmidt is supporting a fraud of a law that changes exactly nothing. Because the Democrats want hard drugs to stay legal, and they don't want people to get treatment, and apparently they want people to die. The Lars Larson Show. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is The Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host... My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I've got a question for you. Why would you allow the suspect... A Accused of shooting a Washington state trooper nine times, why would you allow that person to bail out of jail? I thought I'd put that question to my buddy, Ari Hoffman. He actually does the talk show on our Seattle affiliate following mine. Ari, welcome back to the program. This is insane, including the fact that there is a fund specifically set up to get dirt, by, dirt bags like this out of prison or out of, uh, out of uh, custody. 
Yeah, let's start from the top. So the Northwest Community Bail Fund has been around in Seattle for a while now. They were briefly shuttered for the last couple of years. I don't know if it was because of during COVID or something else. But their big thing is bailing out whoever they think is being unjustly prosecuted because you know as well as I do their real goal is to defund the police and abolish prisons. So yep. what happened was they bail out this guy named Jason Posada. Now, let me go through his rap sheet for you for a minute. This guy has convictions for robbery in the second degree, assault in the third degree, possession of a stolen vehicle, theft in the first degree, possession of a stolen vehicle, attempting to elude a pursuing police vehicle, being a fugitive from justice, attempted burglary in the second degree. This guy was also being held or actually had a warrant out from Department of Corrections for his arrest at the time he shot the officer. So the Northwest Community... I'm Bill sorry, allegedly, uh, allegedly shot oh, the sorry. officer. Oh, we have to play the allegedly the game. You, he Allegedly, allegedly the dirtbag right. allegedly shot the officer. Yep. He allegedly unloaded an entire clip of bullets into this officer. Nine wounds. Nine wounds. It's amazing the guy is still alive. So the Northwest Community Bail Fund looks at this guy even before he shot the officer with the track record I just gave you there. That's before he shot the officer and said, yeah, this looks like a great guy to parole because you know as well as I do, they just want these guys on the streets. Yeah, and so they have this bail fund, and if they're going to maintain their claim, we only go in where we believe people are being railroaded. Hold on, the guy's got a, a rap sheet as long as your arm, and then uh, is he caught? He's caught at the scene after this shooting? Yes, he's caught very shortly thereafter. Okay. And this is a guy, this is a guy who's a bad seed, right? But now, here's what the organization says. They claim the justice, justice system disproportionately harms our non-white neighbors. We recognize these harms will be felt differently by people with different intersecting identities because of historical, social, cultural, and political context with which our country was created as is maintained. Similarly, we must acknowledge that our non-cisgender community members have been uh, sorry, Lars, are there a whole bunch of LGBTQIA people getting jailed at disproportionate rates, as they no. say? This whole thing no. is a virtue signaling garbage. Yeah. Well, and, and the idea that, wow, they're, they're going after all these people of color and people in various minority groups. Well, yeah, if, but only if they shoot cops. And if they shoot cops, then you should arrest them. And you can't exactly argue, well, the only reason they're arresting me, all the other white people out there, Ari and Lars could probably go shoot as many cops as they want and never be held, you know, in custody because the system is biased toward Ari and Lars. But me, I'm a person of color, so therefore they're going to come after me just because I shot a cop. It's a it's it's such a ridiculous argument. It's hard to take these people seriously. Well, in fact, these are the guys who bailed out Alistair Clinton Baldwin. Now, that name may not mean much to your audience, but he was the first person who was alleged to have convict who had committed the first murder in Seattle's record-breaking 2023. They also bailed out the laundry list of people like Michael Sedeo, who was in jail and charged with assault and robbery until the Northwest Community Bail Fund paid for his release a month later and was charged with stabbing a man to death at City Hall Park. The site of a notorious homeless encampment. 52% of the suspects bailed out by these guys since 2020 
failed to show up for their court dates because it's not like they're putting their mom's house up for bail or something like that. It's donated money. There's no accountability. So they go on to reoffend. And that's compared to 22% of defendants who failed to show up who didn't receive report, support from the fund. Over 20% of those on the bail fund helped release were later charged with a new felony. I mean, this is failure across the board. And I don't think anything changes until, like, this cop sues this bail fund. Well, there's a solution. And the solution... Mm -hmm is what was his bail? Do you happen to know the number and how much he was required to post? Usually it's 10%. It's 10%. I don't know the offhand what it was that time. Okay. I have to go back and but, double check. But, but yeah. uh, so in other words, if the bail is 200 grand and you have to put up 20, mm -hmm. so the bail fund puts up 20, uh, then, then the judges can solve this by saying, I know that you're going to get bailed out. I'm going to set the bail high enough to make sure that you are, number one, going to be in court on time, which is the number one reason for, for bail under the law, but number two, that the community is going to be protected because you seem like, number one, a great flight risk, a risk of running away to flee the charges, uh, and number two, you seem like you're a dangerous person, that if we let you go, you're likely to go out and do more of this. We need to protect the community. And I'm kind of wondering when the first people that, you know, like the man stabbed to death, that his family could sue the bail fund and say, you folks made it possible for this guy, this dangerous person to be on the streets. And as a result, my family member is dead. When, when somebody brings that lawsuit, maybe that can shut it down. But judges should set high bails when they recognize somebody's a, 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 a special danger to the community and say, we're not going to let this guy get bailed out. Yeah, but we're talking about Seattle where we have progressive yeah. judges who release everybody, and we're shocked the prosecutors actually prosecute anybody when they have the opportunity. But I think that these families have the ability to say, yes, bail is constitutional, but the bail system is established for accountability to say you have to put up your own money or you have to put up your mom's house or you have to put up something else, and that makes sure that you are accountable. If there's no way you're actually accountable because this is donated money coming from some anonymous fund that you have no accountability, to, then I think it's actually betraying the very principles that bail is based on. Well, and, and uh, let me uh, let me make mention of the fact that the vice current vice president of the United States is a woman who famously or infamously raised money not in Washington State, but in other states for exactly these same kind of bail funds. So. The people on the left politically believe that there is no reason to hold people in custody even when they're charged with the most serious crimes. And, and, and the end result is more violence in the community. Exactly, exactly. And you're talking about one of the reasons the story gained so much traction was because of Kamala Harris. Because people said, we remember when she did that, how many other funds are there like this throughout the country, especially in blue cities, especially in blue states, that just keep releasing criminals like this? We have a rise in crime nationally, especially in our part of the world. It's only getting worse. We have less and less cops. We need more police. And it looks like the entire system is designed to favor the criminals as opposed to the people who they're going after. And by the way, one other thing I had to mention, you notice that Seattle Transit, just like Portland with TriMet, has said, oh, now that somebody has painted the floor of a light rail train with blood as though you spilled a bucket of it, you know, a gallon of red paint, oh, now we're going to put some extra security on. They still won't put cops back on the trains. They're going to have their own, uh, you know, their own security guards of one kind or another. But they waited until somebody's blood was all over the floor of the train and said, 
said, oh, maybe we should have some security. That's Ari Hoffman. He holds down the fort in the afternoons on our Seattle station. That's Talk Radio 570 KBI. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Coming up, Democrats are accusing Republicans of looting the public schools. Because you like what you hear, right, Lars Larson? Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the school choice movement appears to have hit a nerve, and I think that's a good thing, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because I like school choice, and I'm going to give you an example, or several examples, of how school choice is mirrored in just about every other government program in the United States of America. And yet the labor unions that represent American teachers hate the idea of school choice, which is really kind of an indictment of public schools, if you will bear with me. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, and I think we live up to that every day, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our poll on X today, a little odd, but there is a Missouri law. There are similar laws in Arkansas, Arizona, and Texas that say that if your wife is pregnant in a marriage, you can't finalize a divorce until the baby is born. Now, I've dug as hard as I can so far today, haven't found the legislative history as to why four states in America have that law that say you can start the divorce, but you can't finish it until that baby is born. Not that it would really affect child custody or paternity or child support payments or anything like that. Should you be able to divorce your wife if she is pregnant? I'd say no. But uh, if I'm persuaded by the legislative history, maybe maybe there's a good reason to get rid of it. It does seem odd that only four states have that law. The other 46 states do not, unless, of course, you're an Obama fan, in which case we have 58 states in America, according to Obama. But uh, let me get back to education, because this drives me crazy. There are now two uh, governors uh, who have come out, and they've taken a position, and this is literally how they're framing it. Private schools are only for the rich and privileged. And I already know that there are people listening to the show who have their kids in private schools who are neither rich nor privileged, and they make great sacrifices to make sure they can pay private school tuition, which oftentimes is far below the cost of the government-run schools that are currently failing kids all over America. But the more important indictment is when they say, that Republicans are trying to loot our public schools for private vouchers. Uh, take a listen to what Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, has to say about what he calls a voucher scheme. It's clear that the Republican legislature is aiming to choke the life out of public education. Their private school voucher scheme will pour your tax money into private schools that are unaccountable to the public and can decide which students they want to keep out. If they get their way, our State Board of Education will be replaced by political hacks who can dictate what is taught and not taught in our public schools. Now, hold on a second. This is coming from the Democrat governor of North Carolina. 
And he says, they want to dictate what can be taught and what shall not be taught in our public schools. Well, there's a problem right there. Number one, Democrat liberals have been jamming all kinds of indoctrination into public schools. And you, you have probably heard the examples just as I have. You have teachers who are, you know, featuring, um, uh, drag queen story hour for young kids. You have teachers who are pushing the idea of gender transition on kids. You have school districts that are pushing the idea of critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion, which includes lessons to your kids. If you have white skin, you are part of the oppressor class, and you benefit from that. If you have black or brown skin, you are a victim, and you're a victim of those people over there. In other words, you take a classroom full of kids, white kids, black kids, brown kids, and you say, the white kids are bad. Their skin color tells you they're bad. And the brown and black kids, you are victims. And you will never be able to do anything without the assistance of, you know, the Democrat Party. So USA Today put this column out by these two Democrat governors, and they were making the argument that private school scholarship accounts that would allow lower income families to attend schools, private schools, are some kind of trick by rich people to benefit only rich schools, only rich people, only the privileged people. Listen again to Governor Roy Cooper as he talks about the public schools in his state. North Carolina schools need rigorous science, reading, and math classes. Not more politicians policing our children's curriculum with book bans, elimination of science courses, and more. Put together, these ideas spell disaster that requires emergency action. The North Carolina I know was built on support for public schools, and we can't let the legislature tear them down. Tear them down? No, do you know what would happen if you had a true voucher program? where you say to parents, if you're unhappy with the kind of education your child is getting in the traditional government-run public schools, if you don't want your kid proselytized to, if you don't want your kid indoctrinated about sex, about gender, about skin color, and a lot of other things that many parents believe are not appropriate for the kids. If you don't want your kids to be assigned to read books, there is no book ban, by the way, Governor Cooper. Uh, there's There aren't any books that are proposed for banning, but there are books where parents have said, this book is not appropriate for my 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old son or daughter. Some of these books are so pornographic that when the parents show up at a school board meeting and start reading from the books aloud to a group of adults at a school board meeting, they have school boards that go ballistic. They say, you can't read that book in here. That's disgusting. That's dirty. That's pornographic. And the parents reasonably say, well, hold on. If this book is not appropriate for a group of adults talking about education policy and what books should be in front of kids and what books should not, how in the world could it be appropriate for an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old? And, of course, most school boards have no answer to that. But I want to tell you one other thing, too. Two things about school vouchers. Number one, if you give parents the ability to take their kids out and put them in a parochial school, a private school, a charter school, an online education system, what will happen is the public schools will be forced to bring up their game. They will be forced to have to provide a quality education. Many of them are not. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the test scores, see how the kids are doing on math, 
and reading and writing and science, the very things that Governor Cooper names. That's number one. So having vouchers is going to improve public schools by threatening them with the loss of students and the money that goes with them that they view as their personal property. Second issue, I've asked people before, do you have a family member on Medicare? And many of them will say yes, and I'll say, is your grandmother or mother uh, required to go to a government hospital to spend those Medicare dollars? And they'll say, well, of course not. That's silly. Well, how about a government grocery store where they spend their food stamps? Are they required to go to a government grocery store? And they say, Lars, there is no such thing. If you have a Pell Grant and you're going to college, are you required to spend that Pell Grant at a state university or are you allowed to spend it at a private university? And the answer, of course, is you can spend it anywhere you like. The same ought to be true in public schools. And if kids leave the public schools and they have left by the millions in just the last four years because the public schools are failing, and we saw that especially during the pandemic times, then you should tell the public schools, up your game or lose your students and lose the dollars that go with them. Plan to get your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Simply by listening, you're proving how smart you really are. Lars thanks you. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in just a minute. But I want to talk about Alejandro Mayorkas. He is the Homeland Security Secretary. He has been impeached by the House of Representatives, and now it seems that impeachment is going exactly nowhere. Even though I think it's important to point out, the U.S. Constitution says the Senate is expected after the impeachment of a federal official to actually have a trial and decide whether or not that officials should be found guilty. I've compared it to indictment and trial. Uh, the district attorney indicts. That's what the House effectively does, is they indict somebody by impeaching them. And then the Senate holds a trial, much the way an indicted person might be put on trial to decide whether or not the charge against him is is true or not. I thought we'd talk to Laura Reese, who's Senior Research Fellow for Homeland Security at Heritage and former Acting Deputy Chief of Staff uh, for the Department of Homeland Security. Laura, welcome back. Thank you for having me on. So is Mayorkas ever going to get a trial in the Senate? Will Americans ever hear whether America, whether uh, Democrats in the Senate are willing to say, yep, he uh, he's committed the uh, the offenses that the House impeached him for, and we've either voted him guilty or not guilty? Is that ever going to happen? Well, there seems to be a growing number of senators calling for a uh, full impeachment, even this afternoon. Uh, Senator Thune and even uh, McConnell said that they support a complete uh, trial. Um, so the, the needle may be moving, and we need Americans to keep applying pressure, call their senators, call Senator Schumer in particular, and demand a full trial because the Biden administration and Secretary Mayorkas has been so secretive and so deceitful about their open border operations, the infrastructure that has been set up by the non-governmental organizations, and the money that has been sunk into this. 
And meanwhile, you know, now we have 22-year-old nurse college nursing students uh, being killed by by people who you know shouldn't be here. And Americans were fed up before. It's showing, you know, immigration is in every the top top issue for every poll right now. Um, it, they're just getting angrier. I mean, this, I, I, the, that girl sorry. should be alive. Laura, I know that. You know, people say, well, this is political. And I said, didn't the founders intend this was effectively a political decision? It's not a decision on policy. It's a decision on has this person done his job? Has he, you know, lied to the Congress? Has he violated the law? Has he violated the Constitution? Has he put the country at risk? I think the answer to all that is yes, he's done all that. Well, if the Democrats want to stand up and back this guy, then why don't they have the trial and say we voted to acquit him and that's that? Donald Trump was acquitted twice after being impeached, and uh, and and they could do the same with Mayorkas. Or do they see too much political hazard in saying no, he's done a good job when it's very clear to Americans he has not? Well, that's exactly it, and that's why the Senate Democrats don't want to hold a trial because they don't want to defend this guy. They've lost confidence in him, like everybody else. They just won't admit it in public. Um, so I, I think perhaps the best result would be if the Democrats just quietly went to Mayorkas and said, it's time for you to go spend more time with your family, and he resigns. Um, but he needs to get out of office, and he shouldn't be permitted to hold public office again. Uh, the damage he's done, the refusal to uphold the law, violating the law, uh, lying to Congress under oath, lying to the American public, um, and endangering so many Americans. Laura, let me ask you about this. Uh, Joe Biden, in his long, uh, I would say too long, Senate career and, and then as vice president, now as president, he's been to the American border exactly one time. He's going to go again tomorrow, except he's going to Brownsville rather than going to where most of the illegals have been flowing across the border. He's going to one of the legitimate border crossings, which is not where we have the problem. But having said that, do you get the sense that he is starting to course correct on this uh, because he realizes how much trouble he's in on immigration issues with Americans? They now, all the polls in the last week or so, have said that Americans see illegal immigration as their biggest uh, issue when it comes to you know, the presidential election and the other elections going on this fall. So it, does he see enough danger there for himself politically that he's going to course correct? And if, that, if so, then why not? You know, why not pitch uh, Mayorkas overboard? We know Biden will replace him with somebody probably just as bad, if not worse. But it's a, it's a good opportunity for the president to do that if he's really course correcting and not doing a head fake. I'd like your honest assessment of where this is actually going, because I, I don't have a handle on it. Substantively, I don't think he will course correct, uh, but he will do the performance theater and, and give the lip service to border security that he thinks he needs to do in this election year because he knows this is such a bad issue for him. Um, he continues to beg for more money. He continues to push for the terrible border deal that uh, Senator Lankford and Schumer and a couple other senators cobbled together, which would have expanded and codified the very open border tools Biden has been using. That is what he wants, in addition to billions more dollars to give to the NGOs and the sanctuary cities uh, to keep this act all going, his open border operations. 
Um, and, and I agree with you. It might get to the point where he says, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, you got to go. And, uh, you know, I need a scalp. Uh, that That is a possible outcome. But substantively, policy-wise, he's not going to change course. Okay, now I want you to hold me back if I've gone over my skis on this one. Because for the last couple of months I've been telling my audience that, look, Biden says he needs more resources to solve this problem. This problem was at one of the lowest levels Americans had ever seen of illegal crossing during Trump with policies that didn't have the benefit of extra money, didn't have the benefit of a fully constructed wall. And Trump had to go out and find the money for the wall elsewhere because the Congress, both the Republican and the Democrat Congress, refused to give it to him. And yet he managed to bring about one of the lowest levels of illegal entry America had ever seen. Joe Biden has those same tools available to him right now. Is his argument to, to Americans saying, I can't do this without more resources, which, as you point out, he'll just put to work getting more illegals across the border. But can he really make the argument? And will Americans buy the idea that Trump managed to solve it with the resources he had? Biden can correct it with the resources he has. He doesn't need another dime. I don't think he can still uh, convince Americans that more money is going to secure the border. Um, when more videos come out uh, each week of someone going to an NGO or a, a shelter where migrants are being held, trying to ask questions of the NGO representatives and getting rejected, I mean, those NGO reps will not talk, and then they will grow hostile. Um, when As more of these leak out, Americans become aware that when Biden asks for more money, that's what it's going for. And it's just perpetuating the mess that we're in. Uh, so, no, he can't make that argument con convincingly anymore. But we have to scour any funding bill that is coming along in Congress and find where they're hiding that money because they will do it. The NGOs have run out of money. The sanctuary cities are growing desperate. We have them on the ropes, and we need to make sure Congress doesn't give them more money i mean this is the part that's irritated me the you know some of it that's irritated me the most lawyers they'll say well american taxpayers aren't paying for those airplane tickets and those bus tickets and i say yeah you're taking the money and sending it to the u.n or to ngos uh or straight to ngos and then there's so you launder it through these but it's still american taxpayer money i got about 10 seconds Yes, the money is going out through Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, State Department, Health and Human Services, and Justice Department through the form of grants to these NGOs. Then the NGOs buy the tickets and the shelter and do the transportation. And that's how it works. Laura Reese, uh, formerly of Homeland Security, now with the Heritage Foundation. Laura, it's a pleasure. Back in a moment, your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Glad to get your calls. I got to tell you about one piece of good news. I know a lot of times I'm griping about something, although I've tried to make it a rule that if I'm going to gripe about something, figure out a solution to the gripe if I possibly can. But occasionally there's great news. 
It appears that rent control, which had already passed the House of Representatives in Olympia, has died. It appears to have died in the Senate, and thank God for that. And why? They wanted to have House Bill 2114, limiting rent and fee increases to 7%, would have increased the notification period to six months and then increases over 3%, you had to give six months notice. It would also say that if the increase was over 7%, the tenant would receive damages and up to three months rent if they weren't notified 20 days ahead of time. You can imagine how landlords would simply maneuver around this, say, okay, I'm going to raise rents 2.9%, and I'm going to do that every six months, and uh, we're going to end up getting the money in any case. And I want you to understand the... Uh, the rent increases are happening not because of the landlords. I know there are people who say, well, the landlord sets the rent. No, the marketplace sets the rent. And I can tell you how this works. If I had, an, I don't have an apartment building, but if I had an apartment building uh, with any number of units, 20 units, let's say, in Seattle or Portland or Tri-Cities or Spokane or wherever, if I say, you know what, I think my units are worth $1,800 a month. And I put them out on the market, and nobody bites for two months. Do you know what the market is telling me? That apartment is not worth $1,800. On the other hand, if I lowered the rent to $1,000, and I immediately filled every single vacant unit, it would tell me I probably went in too low. And where's the real rent? Right in between. Somewhere in between $1,000 and $1,800. And I can tell you, that apartment managers, I've never been in, I had a duplex at one time, but I, I've never had an, I've never been an apartment manager, have told me. They said, I have tenants that if I raise the rent 50 bucks, they will pack up and move somewhere else. But that's assuming they can find somewhere else. And do you know who's controlling that? That would be state and local government control whether or not more housing is built. If you allowed more housing to be built in Oregon and Washington and made the rules so that the people who want to build housing, the people who want to operate housing, could actually do that, rents would come down. They'd at least moderate. But uh, as long as Salem and Olympia have decided to make it hard to build housing, not much is going to be built. And as long as the supply is short, then you're going to get higher rents. Let's go to a naysayer, Sean. Hey, Sean, we love naysayers. What do you and I disagree about today? Oh, Lars, thank you for taking my call. I hate to use a cliche, but I'm a long-time listener and a first-time caller. Well, I'm, I'm very, very uh, pleased to hear that. Thank you. Lars, 99.999% of the time, I agree with you, except for uh, the issue that someone should not be able to divorce a woman. A man should not be able to divorce it because she's pregnant. And that is the law in four states and not the law in 46. Now, why, I, 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 I tried, I tried what I could today to find out why they passed those laws. I can't find the reason, but they put them on the books in four states. You support correct? I said at first blush, I looked at it and I said, yeah, if, if your wife's pregnant, you, pro you shouldn't get divorced or shouldn't finalize the divorce while the baby is still on the way. Okay, well, okay. That's all the law says. That depends on the situation, correct? Can we agree that that depends on the situation? I think it very much depends on the situation. But if, if okay, when I looked I'll, at I'll it, try to keep, yeah, I'll try to keep my story very, very short. Uh, did two tours with this kid, and he was a lot younger than me. 
in the sandbox, and we came back. We got stationed in Fort Lewis, and he meets what's called we call a BAQ Ranger. BAQ is your basic allowance for quarters. That's the money that you get. And so she tricks this guy into getting pregnant. Well, turns out that this poor kid from Pig Knuckle, Arkansas, that he got schooled. He, you know, and the grandmother saying, you know, you 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 don't need to do this. She's just going to use you and hinder your military career. Or I don't know. I mean, he was up for promotion. We could go back overseas. You know, this guy could have got out decorated, and then this girl tricked him into getting pregnant. And the grandmother says, "Look, just walk away, and I'll take care of the kid." So, but he's, he's still on the hook for child support, isn't he? Well, whether whether he's married well, to her or not, correct. Now, now child support's not. I didn't know the child support factored into it, which it should. But he he was willing to. But the fact that it was, if he would have stayed married to her, he would have. And she ended up dying of a drug overdose about a year oh, later. Boy. Grandma's black the kid. They, you know, the guy still has a great. But, uh, but okay, but Sean, because family. we're coming to the top, they are. I got to ask you one quick question: How would getting divorced sure. four or five months sooner rather than four or five months later have changed any of that? Uh, I'm sorry, say that again. I'm sorry, Lars. Whether whether he gets divorced when she's six months pregnant or whether he gets divorced one month or two months into his new baby's life, how's that going to change anything? It's not. And I think that's the way they looked at the law. But as I said, I'm going to do more research and see if I can find out why they put the law on the books in four states. It says you can't finalize the divorce while the pregnancy is still going on. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and i'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails i know we've been talking a lot about measure 110 in the last couple of weeks but the reason for that the de facto drug legalization it happened in washington state because of a court decision it happened in oregon because voters passed ballot measure 110 but now it is one of the number one issues in the state it has made Oregon the number one place to die of fentanyl overdose, with the numbers increasing 1,500% in the last three years. And I put most of the blame, if not all of the blame, on ballot measure 110. So whether the legislature decides to actually fix this problem in the next couple of weeks or not is up to members of the legislature, like Oregon State Representative Dwayne Yunker, who's from Josephine County and joins me now. Uh, Representative Yunker, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. Let's start with a punchline first. Is the legislature going to solve this problem before it uh, does sine die and goes home? 
I'm not sure what the meaning of solving would be because I have some skepticism of the people in charge of making these decisions. And in fact, you raised that at the hearing on, on Measure 110. You said, does it make sense that the same people who rode the Measure 110 wave into office just uh, three years ago have now been put in charge of reforming the measure today? It doesn't make sense, does it? No, it, and I did it on the floor yesterday. I um, I spoke out in a remonstrance that the seven people on the on the Democrats on the committee took twenty nine thousand five hundred dollars from Drug Policy Alliance. That's the George Soros group that funded Measure One Ten. And now I'm supposed to trust them to fix the problem. I don't have. I how should I trust them? Should the voters trust them? I I, I don't think that's um, a wise decision. By the way, did any of those members of that committee declare a conflict of interest uh, and make the declaration, I took money from George Soros, whose group not only funded it, but they literally wrote the ballot measure? Did they declare a conflict, and should they have? Well, you know, I give them something. I mean, you, you can't control if someone goes on your website and gives you money. But you know what? You can sure speak out and say, I don't. I don't want this money. You can try to give it back. You could donate it, um, but they didn't. And I and I got attacked by you know Rep. Sanchez after that floor thing, telling me I don't know her. But I, you know what I said to her? You took the money. Yeah. The, these the, you have blood money on your hands. There's people dying in my district, and you're responsible for it. Obviously, she didn't like that, and you know I probably won't get you know my part of the cookies that uh, you know they want to you know when they want to pass out money but I, I didn't come here to get any little cookies for my um my district you can't buy me off i'm that uh, you know spades a spade these people are corrupt yeah they are and 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 i guess i've been trying to make the case to people that this is killing people right now and pushing it off to a ballot measure in two years or having the legislature, you know, do a small change now that doesn't fix the problem and then say, well, we'll fix it again in two more years. Well, two more years, by my math, is about 3,000 dead bodies from now. And I, and I think unless you put it in those terms and make people understand, this is 3,000 people, including likely a whole bunch of teenagers who are going to be dead because of this that don't have to be dead if you'll address the problem. And if uh, Loretta Sanchez doesn't get it, well, too bad. It, it, you know, Lars, it goes worse than that. We have less beds today for treatment than we did eight years ago. And we spent, what, $245 million from yep. Measure 110. And yep. we are so far behind it, to, to get this infrastructure up because we spent so much time handing out needles and, you know, drugs, you know, stuff, the harm reduction stuff. We've been killing people with $245 million. We haven't been helping people. And these are not, these people are people's family members, their brothers and sisters, you know, whatever. And, and they don't care. They don't care. You know, yesterday we had the ACLU spent four hours attacking Representative Mannix at the committee for Measure 110, which is actually House Bill 4002. You know, call him a racist. You know, crop and, you know, um, Senator Lieberman. They didn't stop them and correct the, these people testifying. They're just allowing them to call people racist, which he didn't even write the bill. This is a Croft and Lieberman bill. The, the Republicans didn't write this bill, 4002. It, it, it's just bad business. They don't care about us. 
they're going to do what they want. It, it is so sick here. Well, Representative Yunker, I'm talking to Dwayne Yunker from Josephine County. He's a Republican. I'd love to talk uh, to, to Lieber or to, to talk to Krupp about this. But where did that quarter of a billion dollars go if it didn't actually stand up some drug treatment? I would say it would be like, and I'm, I think I've heard this on your show, in, in Jackson County, you got, um, you know, the stabbing wagon or these places that are um, handing out needles or things like that. I'm sure there's a ton of them in Portland that are spending dollars for, I would even say, racial things, nothing to do with Measure 110. Um, it's all, I, I look at it as, putting money back into their nonprofits that are giving to their campaign. That's the way I look at it. Um, it is a corrupt system. Um, the taxpayer should be upset. Um, we could do a lot of good with 200, you know, quarter million dollars, quarter, quarter million billion. dollars. I mean, because billion dollars. Rep, Rep Yunker, I mean, this seems like the approach I'd take. I'd say, okay, who's doing drug treatment right now and doing a really good job? Give me a list of the top dozen programs and then say, OK, let's go to those programs and say, how much could you expand if we gave you a checkbook? And they say, well, if you gave us 10 million, we could we could double our capacity. OK, let's do that. That isn't rocket science. I mean, it's also not no. handing money out to all your buddies. But you go identify whether it's private nonprofits, whether it's for profit hospitals, whether it's uh, no matter what the animal is. You go to them and say, do you have a track record of treatment? Yes. Could you expand your program? Well, we need a bigger building. If we gave you this check, you know, this amount of money, how much could you expand? Because they should have been able to come back and say, well, we spent $75 million and we've doubled the capacity for treatment in the state. And you're telling me they haven't done any of that. There's no accountability for that money. You know, I look back at my town, there's the Gospel Rescue Mission. The Gospel Rescue Mission only gets money from donations. They make no yep. government money. And if they don't do a good job, guess where their money goes? They get no more. They get no more. There is no, and, and, and obviously they have to have a good accountability of what they're doing and changing people's lives. These nonprofits that are doing horrible, they don't, they just ask for more money. And I don't want to say all because there is some good, drug treatment providers out there. I know a couple of them. They want to do well, but they're kind of stuck in this realm of, well, the government tells us we got to do um, harm reduction. we got to do that, and we would like to have more beds, but we can't ask for that money because that's not what the left is. Unbelievable. That is Representative Dwayne Yunker from Josephine County. Representative Yunker, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, I'm going to ask you a question. If you can change your gender, can you change your race to get a raise? And I'll get to your phone calls and emails, too. Lars Larson Show. I kind of expected that this would eventually happen, but there's a man who's making what I think is a fairly good case saying, if I work as a cop, he's in Chicago, and uh, I'm told that everybody who wants to can change their gender if they decide to for whatever reason they want. 
Well, he's been trying to get a promotion for some long time, and he keeps taking the test. He scores well, but he is a Caucasian. His name is Muhammad Yusuf, but he is on the books as a Caucasian. So he says he wants to change from Caucasian to Egyptian and African-American, and he says that his uh, research into his own genealogy shows that he's entitled to do that. So if you can change your gender... Can you change your race to get a raise? And I want to get into the details of that in just a moment. First, I want to get some of your calls. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And our X poll question, which used to go by Twitter, um, but is now X, should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? There are four states in America that make it illegal to finalize a divorce if a pregnancy has not come to fruition. So, uh, should you be able to divorce uh, if your wife is pregnant? I said no. Uh, I'll do more study on this. I don't know why they have the law on the books in uh, Missouri, which is the state that's considering changing it right now. Arizona, Arkansas, and Texas, they have a law that says... If the baby is on the way, then the divorce cannot be finalized. You can find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Uh, let's go first to Alan. Hey, Alan, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, I don't understand why when Biden says he wants to close the border, why somebody doesn't ask him, how come you are suing Texas then? I haven't heard Joe Biden say he wants to close the border, and all of his actions no, are saying, going. Go ahead. That's what I'm saying, though. He's he doesn't want to close it. We know that. Yep. But he's always time making excuses for keeping it open, you know, and this. So ask him why he's suing Texas. Yeah, Texas They're has actually managed to accomplish more in the last six months than Joe Biden has done the opposite of in about the last three years. I mean, because oh, Joe, well, Biden, sure Joe Biden has the same resources available to him today that Donald Trump had four years ago. And Donald Trump achieved one of the lowest levels of illegal alien invasion in American history. Joe Biden has to the contrary, achieved one of the highest levels of illegal alien invasion, and he says he can't do anything about it unless the Congress gives him billions of dollars. Well, he's got the same tools available to him that Trump did. He should go out and get with the program, but he, he doesn't want to do what Trump did. He doesn't want to actually control that border. Why, those are undocumented Democrats who are crossing that border right now. Let's go to Matt. Hey, Matt, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your well, mind? Howdy, Lars. Howdy, Lars. A couple points. Um, I, and I can speak from experience. You know, uh, high schoolers and junior hires, uh, they should read uh, true stories, novels, and science fiction and um, fiction, but omit the plays and poetry. Because when I, I remember when I was in high school and junior high, I tried to read those, and I understood everything except the plays and poetry. Hmm. And also, yeah. Are you talking like, about the issue of what the Democrats call book banning, which isn't actually book banning? It's simply school districts that have said, we don't want books in front of little kids that are not age appropriate. 
Well, to an extent, yes, but also, um, but also, too, they should, um, high schoolers and junior high, they should have them read true stories, novels, and, sci and science you mentioned things that. they understand. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that. That's not a bad idea. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, I mean, the fact is, is that I hear Democrats all the time say, why these Republicans, they're trying to ban books. You know, I want to push back hard on that because we're not banning books at all. There are books that are appropriate for kids. There are also books that are highly inappropriate for kids. And for whatever reason, the teachers, many of them, want to put books in front of kids that are absolutely inappropriate. And by inappropriate, I think that's almost too mild a term. Many of those books are so pornographic that when parents bring them to school board meetings and they stand up to read them, the school board acts shocked and said, you can't read stuff like that in a school board meeting, to which reasonable parents say, well, if this is inappropriate for a meeting of adults on the school board, that is certainly inappropriate for little kids. And then the Democrats turn around and say, that's book banning. No, nobody has banned a book. What we have said is there are books that should be in front of little kids. There are books that should not be in front of little kids. I'm going to stick to that position. Let me go back to this guy who is now trying to change his race, at least the race in the official records of the police department where Muhammad Youssef has been a police officer in Chicago for the last 20 years. He got in when he was in his early 20s. He's been a veteran of the Chicago Police Department, and he keeps taking the sergeant's exam and apparently scores very well on the sergeant's exam. The problem is he doesn't, get, he doesn't get promoted. And he says the reason he's not getting promoted, at least from his point of view, is he says because he's on the records as white. And in fact, if he were listed as Egyptian and African-American, which is what he's asking to change to, then uh, he'd probably get the promotion. So, he has now brought a lawsuit against the city of Chicago to officially change his racial designation on his official records after the department said it would allow officers to freely change their gender. And his attitude is, well, <clears throat> if you can change your gender, then I can change my race to get a raise. The lawsuit comes as the department allows an officer's gender identity to be corrected to match what they call their lived experience, whatever that means. According to the lawsuit, Yusuf says he has been repeatedly overlooked for promotions because he's Caucasian. He's white. These promotions, he says, have given have been given to other minority applicants and with only a very few going to white applicants for the job. Now, I think some of this stuff is kind of silly, but I think it's a good way to illustrate something that I've always believed. And that is if somebody tells you, well, there's this really stupid set of rules, and you say, how do we get rid of this stupid set of rules? And the quick answer is enforce them absolutely. So if you work for a company and the company says anybody who wants to can identify themselves any way they want. I mean, there are, and we've talked about them on this show, people who are white, but they identify as black. They're allowed to do that, and usually it's to their financial advantage. There are people who've said, I was actually born a boy, but now I'm a man, and now I want to be a woman. And they assert that they're a woman, and they get treated with the utmost of respect. Nobody is even allowed to misgender them and say the wrong pronoun to them. Well, if you want that set of rules... 
Just expect that at some point it's going to come around and bite you in the backside. And I think that's exactly what's happening to the city of Chicago. They're going to have to walk into court and their attorneys are going to have to say, yes, your honor, anybody on the Chicago PD can change their gender anytime they please. But if a man walks in and says, I've done the genealogical research, I've determined that I have both African-American and Egyptian heritage, I no longer want to be white, put me on the books as black, and then give me a promotion. You knew this was going to happen, they're going to get their just desserts, and it, frankly, it serves them right. Back in a moment, glad to get your calls. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest. The Network. Lars Larson Show. Slash for a better us. Keeping you happy, informed, and always guessing what he'll say next. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you've ever seen a picture of me, you understand two things. I've got a face for radio, and I love food. I absolutely love food, and I, I've had to curb my appetites and lose a few pounds because I got type 2 diabetes. So I pay close attention to what's going on with food. Now, the question is, what are we going to be eating in a few years or maybe even a couple of decades? Because I think there are people out there who have some strange plans for Americans and for rest of the rest of the people on the planet as to what we're going to be eating. I thought I'd put that to David Vorman, who is vice president at Food Solutions Action. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Hey, the Democrats and liberals worldwide seem to hate fishing. They seem to hate farming, and they seem to be pushing us in the direction of either cultivated food of one kind or another, and I don't mean growing at the ground, but food that's made in laboratories or large factories in vats the size of Rhode Island. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried about where they're going with us, and especially, I don't want to eat bugs. Can you help allay any of my fears? I'm, I'm happy to, and I'll say, first of all, that you know we do not advocate for eating bugs you know, but what really is important to know is that this is not really a, a Democrat or a liberal run thing. There's just realities out there that America really needs to face. And that's that protein demand and protein consumption is at an all time high in history. And that's only projected to rise. We're projected to double meat demand by 2050. And, you know, land is a finite resource and we've got some issues with water and for food supply. So we have to figure out how are we going to feed the world? How are we going to meet this global protein demand? And that's where things like cultivated meat come into play. Now, would you mind describing what is cultivated meat? Yes, and you'll you'll have to bear with me. I am not a scientist, so this okay. is a layman's, am I. a layman's description of what cultivated meat is. So what it is is it's taking one animal and harvesting cells from that animal. So that's one cell line, and then. What we can do is we can isolate those cells, and then we can put them into what's called a bioreactor. Think about what looks like really what you see in a, a beer brewery, kind of a, a brewing tank. And, and what these bioreactors do is they isolate these cells, and then you put in a solution that's water, that's amino acid, that's nutrients. And you're sending the messages to the cells to grow. And instead of growing the muscle tissue in an animal, we're growing that muscle, muscle tissue in a, in a bioreactor in more of a sterile environment. 
Even though you gave me a very uh, a very layperson level explanation, David, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like the idea, and I want to go back to the original premise you made. I mean, we already threw Thomas Malthus out of the bus and said, okay, you're crazy. You said we couldn't grow enough food to feed the planet. And I think he said that back at a time when there were far fewer people on the planet. We've now got close to 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, as I understand it, we grow enough food for the entire world. Uh, so now that we've thrown Malthus out the window or out the door, um, can, is there any reason, especially for Americans who have abundant land, abundant energy, uh, and abundant uh, technological resources, is there any reason that makes it desirable to go to cultivated food instead of growing food the old-fashioned way, on farms and on ranches? Well, what's desirable is this, this is what's needed. And no one's going to force Americans to eat this. No one's going to force people to eat cultivated meat. Hamburgers, steaks, traditional animal protein to meat, that's not going away. We have to figure out how we're going to meet worldwide demand. And this is irrespective of population increase. What we're finding is the world's getting wealthier, the world's getting more urban. And what's really interesting is that the first thing that happens when we see countries get more wealthy and, and populations and communities get more wealthy, one of the first things that happens is meat demand goes up. If this is happening in China, this is happening in India, where they've had really low meat-heavy diets. And now as they're getting more wealthy, they're getting more urban, suddenly we're seeing a really, really rapid increase in demand that we just can't meet with our current finite land resource. Okay, but, but here's the, but you've used the phrase a couple of times, we've got to figure out how to feed the world. Is it the job of the United States to feed the world, or is it uh, financially desirable? I mean, if we're going to grow food, and we have been growing food for export for a long, long time while meeting all of our own needs, we have so much food that we grow, we, we li literally do, through the CRP program, pay farmers not to farm on lands, not to cultivate lands. Um, we've got the resources here to have the diet we have. Is it our job to feed the rest of the planet, too? I don't know if it's our job, but we certainly want to do it. Well, by I job, for, I mean moral responsibility. Do we have a moral responsibility to feed the rest of the world, or should the rest of the world also take part in feeding itself? I don't know if moral responsibility has anything to do with it. I think it's really smart politics. First of all, we know there's going to be an export market, so we can continue to export this. We know that China has made this a top three priority, ag priority, in the next five years. China's going all in on this. One, they've got a billion people. They need to feed this. But they understand that food security is national security. And if you're the one feeding the world, you're going to have a lot of sway over geopolitical matters. Think about energy. I think that's a really important analogy here is that if you think about it, you know, we want to control domestic energy and we don't want to be reliant on other nations. Why don't we want to be reliant on other nations? Because energy is really important. And if we're relying on other nations, we're really at the mercy of them. Now, think about food. Food is energy. It's energy for our bodies. It's not energy for our cars and our homes. And if China is the one controlling the energy, the food supply for the Middle East, for South America, for Africa, that has really major geopolitical implications. Yeah, we does. don't want to cede that to China. The United States wants to be out front of that and make sure that we're the ones controlling that population. We're the ones with geopolitical influence that we're not at the mercy of China. Well, and by the way, when you said they're not going to make us eat this stuff, well, I'm watching Europe right now where farmers are being told you have to trim back your 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 uh, 
stock, uh, trim back your cows, trim back all your other livestock, reduce your use of uh, petrochemical fertilizers and things like that. And they're doing it in the name of climate a justice of some kind and i have a feeling that that movement is going to come here as well what do americans do when you say well you're going to have to eat bugs and you're going to have to eat cultivated uh, meat because because the climate crazies have told us we can't use fertilizer and we can't use all these other things and we're not allowed to use the energy that we have in abundance in the form of oil coal natural gas we have to buy solar panels from china you know, while China isn't running its economy on solar panels, it's running it on coal. So if you tell me that they're not going to make us do this, I suspect that we're going to be uh, at least uh, the question is going to be posed as it is in Europe. Uh, we're going to tell the farmers not to grow as much food, either in the form of meat or cultivated crops. Do you think I'm right or wrong? I think, thankfully, America is not Europe. I think that's a, that's a concern Thank that we're God. seeing. <laughs> but we are not Europe. We have elected representatives. I think we have a, a strong Republican Party, and this is where people can speak up and just say, we don't want to be forced to do this. But I also think that we need to be realistic, and we can't be short-sighted, and we understand that we shouldn't force people to do this, and we shouldn't force farmers to not be able to farm, and we shouldn't force the cattle industry to, to not produce animal protein their way. But we also need to be realistic that there's really worldwide protein demand that's skyrocketing, and the United States needs to make sure that we're in front of that. We can innovate. I think it's important that we innovate. We can continue to lead in biotech without worrying that that's a slippery slope to the government telling us what we can and can't do. Yeah, I I'm, just, I'm just worried that when price pressures start to come into that equation, that, that that might be the way that they push us in that direction. That's David Vorman, who's vice president at Food Solutions Action. And as I said, I'm not persuaded to eat cultivated meat yet, and I certainly am not going to be eating bugs. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Our poll on X today. Should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? Now, I'd never run into this before, but it turns out that in four American states, there are laws on the books that say you may be able to start your divorce or your separation while your wife is pregnant, uh, but you can't finish it. You can't finalize it. It's true in Missouri, Arizona, Arkansas, and Texas. And uh, now there's a bill in Missouri to get rid of the law. I told you I did research this morning, tried to find out online. Uh, of course, I, I'm not in Missouri. I'm not in Arkansas. Uh, why do they have that book, uh, that law on the books at all? But there is a move to get rid of it. But should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant and finalize the divorce before the pregnancy comes to fruition? Uh, I would say no. 
you shouldn't be able to divorce your wife if she's pregnant. I actually agree with the law that's on the books in four states, but not on the books in 46 other states. Today's poll on X can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Let's go to John, who's a naysayer. John, you want to talk about Measure 110, the de facto drug legalization in Oregon that Democrats want to keep in place? Did you say it's the main cause of the drug crisis? Because I would say, have you read the book Blood Money by Schweitzer? I've read Blood Money, but John, yeah. if I point out to you that America has seen a a 100 in three years 100 percent increase in fentanyl overdose deaths nationwide so there is a problem that is across the entire country but in oregon yeah where, I, may, hold let me finish you ask the question i'm answering it in oregon where I, I in oregon where de facto drug legalization let me finish in oregon where drug de facto drug legalization happened three years ago we have seen not a 100% increase, but a 1,500% increase in fentanyl overdose deaths. Yes, I would say Measure 110 was the primary driver on that. Well, are you going to let uh, um, the narco state of Mexico off the hook? No. I I've talked about Mexico's role. I've talked about China's role. John, what is it you and I disagree about? Because you haven't said that yet. Well, I did. You said the main cause was Measure 110. I know we've got idiots in the Oregon legislature, but I think True. if we were to treat Mexico like Iran and seize these narco-terrorists' uh, funds, we could, get a, we could reverse it a lot. That or would even, take a different president, maybe, wouldn't it, which I've also been advocating for. Joe Biden is letting this happen. I faulted him for not going after China for the drug precursors. I faulted him for not going after Mexico for their role in letting fentanyl come in. All those have been subjects on this show many, many times, John. The people who listen know that. I just think they're the, that's the main reason. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, you know, the main reason, the reason is people take addictive drugs and the cartels supply them and the precursors come from China and the stuff is mixed up in Mexico and our messed up border is part of the problem. China's part of the problem. There are lots of parts of the problem. But when one state in America sees a 15 fold increase in the amount of drug, of uh, drug overdose deaths, you got to wonder. Was there one thing about three years ago that seems to be uh, 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 to play a role in that? And the answer is, yeah, Measure 110. Let's go to Josh. Hey, Josh, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, good to talk to you again. Uh, Thank you, got sir. a question. Sure. So <laughs> I sent you an email here a couple days ago, what about guys? So I just kind of want your opinion before I go in and make myself look like a fool. Evergreen School District has given out this thing called the Youth Truth Survey. I guess and you sent it to me, and it's very field. interesting to read because it asks a lot of highly personal questions of very young kids, doesn't it? Right. So my student, or my son, both my sons go to Evergreen School District. I'm not sure if I should say the name of the school. No, go ahead. Uh, say it. One is, one is six and one is eight. They go to Silver Star Elementary, and okay. it's part of the Silver Star, or part of the Evergreen School District. So... My son came home the other day, and I asked him, of course, like every single day, how you're doing. He says, dude, he says, we, we did this survey. I said, what type of survey? So I know that the school and stuff, once a month, will give like a four-question survey to all the students, afraid, um, I think it's second grade up to the fifth grade, about, you know, how are you doing at school? Is your teacher okay? 
you know, do you feel like you're getting everything, you know, kind of bullied? Just kind of, you know, general questions to make sure that... Sure, sounds not, 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 not a bad idea, right, to find right. out, you know, uh, are your customers happy? Okay. Right. So he came up and he says, well, then they gave us like this 20-minute survey, and it's general questions, the same type of thing of what we just spoke about, but at the end, um, it's supposed to be anonymous. But then at the end, it says, what do you identify yourself as? Are you a boy? Are you a girl? Do you not want to say... Uh, what are your feelings about this? And then it kind of goes back to the general questions again. And he's like, well, he says the weird part about it is that my teacher, because some of the students in his grade aren't to the reading level yet, because, of course, Evergreen School District is at a C- minus when it comes to education, uh, they read it off. So he says some of them felt uncomfortable. So no then I spoke to the principal. And I said, hey, I said, did you know that the survey? And he goes, yes. I said, why weren't we notified? He goes, well, I don't know. Evergreen told, you know, the school district didn't uh, basically notify you. I said, but isn't it your job or what like that or something like this? And so he just kind of went roundabout away. So he told me to go to the Evergreen School District's website or to call the administration board. So I went to the website, and he says there's a family survey there, too, from the same company, but it's for the family. Again, so I then went there. I did it, and it said the same general questions. Okay, about I, we're going to hit the end. Of, we're going to hit the top of the hour. I think you're entitled to ask any question you want. I think you should tell them that the school district is digging into things that are highly personal and none of their damn business, and tell them to stay right. out of it. And they should tell everybody else in the district this is going on. We're gathering the data. And by the way, who owns the data, and where's the it going? Lars Larson Show.